This morning the text, the message is from 2 Timothy, and in connection with that we'll read together uh, from Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 5, and then also Philippians 2. My own congregation in Emmanuel started 2 Timothy just a few weeks ago, and so we have some of the background in these passages that we're reading, Acts 16, uh, verses 1 to 5, and also Philippians 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. If you'd like more information about the Decrees that were determined, you can read about that in Acts 15. Then we'll turn to Philippians chapter 2. We see that the name Timothy appears in connection with many of the churches in Asia Minor as he served uh, as Paul's co-soldier. And here in Philippians 2 verses 19 to 24, we have some commendation of Timothy. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character that as a man with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Then we'll also read the text of the message, which is 2 Timothy chapter 1, the first five verses. Second Timothy chapter 1. This is the text of the message. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, As without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. May God bless the word to our hearts and lives. Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, imagine if one day you went to your mailbox or maybe your inbox and you received a letter from a man that you loved and respected very much who was on death row. 
man who was about to be killed by the government because of his Christian faith. And here you are, you receive a letter from him. The knowledge that we are reading the last words of a man that Christ Jesus himself has called and sent to preach the gospel makes us think not only about the actual words that he wrote, but also why he chose those words. And what those words reveal about how he is doing, what he is feeling and thinking and experiencing in his last days of his life. This understanding makes every word that, that we hear, it hits us, not, not just in, in the mind, but also in the heart. The impact of the words, I thank you or I am thankful, that are spoken by someone you meet on the street, is not nearly the same as the impact of, of reading, I am thankful, as the last words of a father on death row. Now as we read and study Second Timothy, it's important to keep this context and situation in our minds. Most scholars agree that after being imprisoned for some time in Rome, as recorded at the end of Acts, Paul was set free and fulfilled his desire to travel to Spain. And while he was away, Timothy continued to serve the household congregations in Ephesus, while other helpers were also working in other cities. But if you read First Timothy and Titus, you can see that it was a very tough time for new Christians. Not only were they being influenced by very strong-minded false teachers, but also the Roman Emperor Nero was persecuting the church and killing believers. The pastoral letters indicate that perhaps using Corinth as his hub city when Paul returned to help in this perilous situation, Paul had then also visited Macedonia and Crete and Necropolis and Miletus and Ephesus before he was finally arrested by the Romans in order to put to death, to be put to death. The second letter to Timothy was written at some point after Paul's arrest in 67 or 68 AD before he was, as one historian says, beheaded on the Ozean Way, about the same time the Apostle Peter was martyred. So we have a, a picture of the what was all happening when Second Timothy was written. In about 170 AD, an ancient writer, Caius, characterized this letter, Second Timothy, as a letter of love and affection. And as we, as we read what God's servant Paul wrote so many years ago, we can feel that warmth, that love and affection that was described so many hundreds of years ago. And we can feel the weight underlining every word, every sentence that Paul had written down. And these words of deep historical value and genuine example of Christian Faith and perseverance are, are words that are deeply treasured by God's people for the way that they connect our lives today to the real experiences of the church of believers that has come before us. The theme of continuing on from the generation before in simple, unchanging truth of the gospel that comes echoing forth in the first verses 
of Second Timothy. And I preach you that gospel under this theme. God sends generations of servants of the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. We'll see that there is a common cause and a covenant blessing. Now, because Christ has been gathering his church in all times and in all places in the world, we could spend an entire month investigating, discussing, and cataloging all the different situations that God's people find themselves in. Even today, if you ask the members here that are worshiping here today and and the visitors that come from so many different countries in the world, all the different continents, and now here we are in a building. And and if every one of us were, were were to be described what the church looks like in our birth countries or our passport countries or in the countries where our churches are doing mission work, we would have a diverse description of traditions, of meeting places, of traveling challenges, of emphases, of preaching styles, of confessional documents, of strengths, of challenges. And then if we add in how things have changed over the last few centuries, we could talk of, of even more different experiences in which the triune God was worshipped by his people all over the world. The range of experiences, even today, from governmental support to outright persecution, from prosperity to poverty, from freedom to slavery, from large buildings like the building we are in today with with comfortable pews to to small gatherings in in the porches of, of little mud huts, from one flavor of worship to another, depending on the, con- uh, the, the context uh, and the culture and the way that people communicate with one another. We see this, this huge, varied picture. We're extremely humble. And we're continually grateful for that wide, ranging, unfettered, powerful work of the Holy Spirit in this unique tapestry of our human experiences. Although, as we listen today, we may have trouble identifying with each and every situation in the world. We can know that no matter where we came from or what we're used to, we will all be able to identify with the core teaching that's at the heart of every Christian church that Paul and and Paul brings this core forward in verse the first verses of 2 Timothy. In fact, the first verse. He speaks of the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. That brings us all together. That's what holds us all together. Paul's letter to Timothy begins with that central doctrine that unites all Christians of all times, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. When we realize that that promise of life is given to people who are already alive, we can see that the Apostle is referring to a deliverance from spiritual death, which separates people from fellowship with God because of their sins. God gave the promise of life in the context of the curse, when he promised an offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent so that she could be the mother of the living. 
God fulfilled the promise of life by sending His own Son into the world to bear the curse that we deserved for our sins when He died on the cross so that we might be raised up with Him to new life. John 3 verse 16 summarizes what the promise of life is when it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. In John 6 verse 51, Jesus announced, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats from Me, he will live forever. Jesus further explained that He has eternal the authority to give eternal life to all whom the Father had given Him. And then He says, and this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. The promise that unites Christians all over the world. The promise that makes us steadfast in our lives on earth is also the promise that sustains us when we are faced with certain death. Christ's work changes everything for us in every moment of our lives. Christ's finished work and its glorious results for all believers is the, is the center of all God's work in the world. And in His grace, the Lord wants the people who had rebelled against Him to know about it. And that's why we read in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that it was God's will to appoint servants of the promise of life in Christ. Just as our Lord Jesus handpicked particular men to serve as His apostles when He was on the earth. So again, later, the, the Lord snatched the apostle Paul, snatched Paul, who He made to be an apostle, off that lonely road to Damascus and turned him to the way of Christ. God's will prevailed over Paul's. And Paul became an apostle of Jesus Christ. And through his ministry among the Gentiles, the Lord raised up several other servants of the promise of life. And Paul viewed these men as his spiritual children. If you look at 1 Corinthians 4 verse 15, he says to the churches, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then we see what's happening here. We see how God, in His by His will, chose Paul to be a servant. And Paul then became the father of, of others. And, and, and the emphasis here is on the, the continuation of that proclamation of the promise of life that is in Jesus Christ. And how that promise draws our attention to the next generation. You can see how our text encourages us to prepare men for the, the serving in the ministry of the gospel as preachers and shepherds and supporters of these men in their offices. As a church, we you see what's happening, how this letter, Paul's last words, how he's, he's driving his church to, to look forward to the next generation of preachers. We pray that God will give us that same focus, that our next generation will also have that focus on preparing future servants of the Lord. 
maybe you're a young person here today, may it be that your family, your parents also spoke to you about the importance of continuing to have that gospel proclaimed in all the world. The promise of life is everything that that we need to know. Paul's prayers for Timothy and the churches arose out of his concern for the, the future of the churches. The future of the churches that were about to face even more intense persecution. The dangers of, of false teaching. And we look to the future, we say this is, this is important. We do stand in danger of more intense persecution and the danger of false teaching. Well, in his eager desire to see the church of Christ continue faithfully, Paul greets Timothy and all the churches with the glorious blessing that characterizes the life that is in Christ Jesus. United in that common cause, we share in the Father's blessing that the Son has earned, in which the Holy Spirit applies to everyone whom God has given faith. The declaration of, in verse 2 of, of grace for undeserving sinners. The declaration of mercy for those who are in distress. And the declaration of peace for a people who need reconciliation with God. It's a testimony to the reality of the finished work of Jesus Christ that we may all cling to with thankful hearts. And recently we just celebrated Ascension Day. And we had that the reminder that as our Lord Jesus ascended into heaven that with upraised arms, His blessing reached more and more people. That high priestly blessing of our ascended Lord and Mediator Jesus Christ continues to be poured out upon the body of believers in Christ. And so our Lord Jesus equips us for our task and calling in this world. We are a part of a common cause throughout many generations. And we see that blessing from one generation to the next. Paul is such a focused and committed servant for the common cause of the gospel that even when he's on death row, even when he's about to be killed for his faith, he rejoices when he thinks of all the people who believed in Jesus Christ through his ministry and even joined him in his task. You look at the first letters of this apostle, you don't see a, a, a woe-is-me attitude. Because Paul isn't so focused on himself that he gets bitter about his mistreatment. And Paul isn't self-righteous about his persecution. He's completely focused on the Lord. Completely focused on the well-being of the church. He sees himself as a part of, of a much greater work. Then you think about the apostle's last words, some of his last words. What does he say? He says in verse 3, I thank God, whom I serve. For what? As I remember you, as I remember your tears, your sincere faith, or genuine faith. The word serve that the apostle uses in verse 3 is related to the liturgical service that was connected to the role 
of the priests in the Old Testament who stood between God's people and God as, as mediator, as an apostle and spokesman for the living Christ, blessed, he says, with, with a clear or a pure conscience in the real forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, that man who once persecuted the church now lives in, in the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ and is filled with joy to see the faithful response of the next generation of believers. Through Christ, we see no one has to be afraid of death. No one has to be afraid of judgment. And even in the most bitter moments of suffering on earth, we can thank God for the promise of life in Christ from one generation to the next. We thank Him for this. It's not something we take for granted. Waiting for His execution, Paul's mind goes to the covenant blessings of God and how the Lord works through His covenant with believers and their children to preserve the faith from one generation to the next. He himself, we see in, in verse 3, he experienced this from having received the faith from his forefathers. And that prepared him for the full understanding of the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Christ. And you can read Paul write about that, or it's described for us in Acts 22, verse 3 and Acts 24. And then he says he received the faith from the ancestors and came to see Jesus Christ. He, it was his turn to be a, a spiritual father to the next generation. We see how God is, is working through generations. And as you're thinking about that, you can see where you fit in that line. The language of child and father that Paul uses in his letter to Timothy highlights the character of the transmission of the gospel from one generation to the next. Apostles, evangelists, preachers, teachers, elders, and deacons are passing on and, and proclaiming the promise of life that is in Jesus Christ in the context of deep fatherly love and emotional ties to their spiritual children that they are serving in their ministry. In his service of the gospel promise, Paul remembered the people. He remembered the faces and the responses of Timothy and his other spiritual children. We read that he prayed for them constantly, night and day, with a longing to see them. Although we often fight the, the temptation to do, to do pastoral work as if it's merely administrative work. Or we fight the temptation to, to see the shepherds, the overseers that God has, has set over us as, as nothing more than some kind of executive officers. Being a faithful apostle or evangelist or preacher or elder means caring so deeply for those that we shepherd, that we mourn with those who mourn and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And perhaps to to be a part of this, to, to understand exactly what that, that means and how that changes you. You can think, maybe it will help you to think about your shepherds as spiritual fathers who really, truly want what's best for your soul. Pastoral care is deeply emotional, involved, 
prayerful work and the strength of the bonds that are formed among spiritual fathers and their children is exemplified by Timothy's tears when he had to part from his apostle Paul. As I understand it, just recently some office bearers finished their terms and new office bearers were ordained here. Those brothers who, who are leaving the office, they do so with, with a burden. There was bonds that were formed and they, they know exactly that emotion that Paul is speaking of here. We pray that God will grant them consolation as well. And in that connection of office bearers and, and congregations in the context of this intense persecution, imagine your spiritual father about to be killed, we're able to begin to understand some of the emotional suffering that comes for one in seven persecuted Christians in the world today. One in every seven Christians in the world today is being persecuted, threatened, their very lives. And so we see how this letter comes into that reality of our brothers and sisters in the world. We're made to understand the raw emotions. Persecution separates loved ones. It brings physical pain. It brings emotional pain. It brings extreme trauma to both those being harmed and to those who love them. And remembering the context, then we can feel the need for Timothy, the child, now to, to know that Paul, his spiritual father, is okay. And for Paul to know that Timothy and the churches that he is certainly leaving behind will be okay. And what, how do they console one another? How does, how does Paul assure Timothy that he is okay? Does he say to Timothy, don't worry, Timothy, I got lots of money? Does he say, don't worry, Timothy, I'm perfectly comfortable here? Does he say, don't worry, Timothy, I'm, I'm a successful man? Not at all. He says, don't worry, Timothy, I believe in the promise of life that is in Jesus Christ. That's only promise that will guarantee that Paul, Timothy, every other Christian we know that we will meet each other once again. It's the promise that we cling to in the midst of the most intense persecution and all the emotional suffering that comes with us. I'm okay, Timothy. I'm okay, brother. I'm okay, sister. I believe in the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. But we can see why the apostle's mind then turns to the genuine faith that Timothy has. Paul has said, I, I believe this, and, and he points, he says, I find comfort, Timothy, in your genuine, your, your sincere faith. You receive, too, as, as a blessing of the covenant. And then all of a sudden, we're, we're able to understand what we're doing as one generation to the next, as parents to children, as as parents receiving the, the help of other leaders as we look to the next generation. We're focused on the only thing that matters in life and death, Christ Jesus' victory. And so Paul thinks about the, the context of his upbringing in the home. He thinks of Timothy's upbringing. He learned the faith from his mother, who was a believing Jewish woman, and his grandmother, who acquainted Timothy with the sacred scriptures from childhood. We read that in 2 Timothy 3, 
verses 14 and 15. He rejoices in that parental instruction. It's just another example confirming the statistics that speak of the huge impact godly parents can have upon their children's faith and their children's well-being. And we could say their children's eternal well-being. And even though we know that faith is a gift of God alone, and we never take a profession of the Christian faith of our children for granted, our text reminds us of the important place of Christian education in the, in the home, in the church of Jesus Christ. This is a primarily the parents' responsibility. They do not do this work alone. When believing parents have their children baptized, they promise to instruct their children in this doctrine and to have them instructed therein to the utmost of their power, their ability. They have them instructed in this by other spiritual parents. And then we see, brothers and sisters, whether you have children or not, whether you're grandparents or not, whether you are a young child or uh, an adult, we are all spiritual children and spiritual parents. We are all working together in a cooperative, intertwined discipleship program that is called the Cornerstone United Reformed Church of Believers. We are all responsible to one another as we we look to the future of God's people, His work in the world. And so we're asking ourselves now, what, what have what thought have I given to the next generation? Maybe in my own preparation, maybe in my desire to see the spiritual growth of others around you. May God help us to work together in providing Christian education and in being friends and, and mentors to those who are not able to have open and ongoing communication with one or both their parents to, to be that friend that the other person needs by coming alongside one another in our pilgrimage focused on the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And that's the question, isn't it? Is your life centered on the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus? Or have you gotten distracted? Distracted by all the other noise that so easily fills our lives? Do our attitudes toward the Lord and His church reflect our deep and sincere faith in the promise of life that is in Jesus Christ? Does that promise, does it influence the way that you think? Does it influence the priorities in your life, in, in, in the use of your time, in the use of your money, in, in the way that, that you carry yourself in, in your home? Do you give thanks to the Lord every day for the grace and the mercy and the peace that He pours upon you through His Son, Jesus Christ, as you seek to serve the promise of the Gospel according to the will of the Lord? Do we see how in His grace God has included us in His covenant blessings given to believers and their children throughout the centuries, we have received a letter from our spiritual father, 
grandfather, great, 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 great grandfather, was death row. Every word chosen carefully, preserved by the Holy Spirit, it hits us, not just in our minds, but also in our hearts. We may know the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, the common cause of God that we're able to serve. We may participate in this awesome work in our homes, in our communities together, as we thankfully and lovingly come beside one another and enjoy each other's companies, being a friend to those who need that, being befriended when we need it. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, thanked God for this privilege, even there on death row. And he thanked God for the blessing. And we may thank God for this privilege today as well. We praise the Lord. May the Lord help us in this by his Holy Spirit. Amen.